Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'd like to wish a happy Passover to all those who celebrate. Before I get to that delicious matzo ball soup at my Seder tonight, Ben Baldanza, it's time to review the plagues affecting the airline industry and the exodus from pandemic to overcrowded airports and overcrowded airways. Well, thanks, Scott, and I'd like to wish a happy Easter to all who celebrate also. Before we get going, though, Scott, I need to correct something that I said on the show last week. American is not removing basic economy fares from third-party distribution like Expedia, like I said they were. Travel agencies that connect to American using NDC technology will have access to all of American's third-party available fares, including basic economy. NDC stands for New Distribution Capability. It's a new data standard developed by the International Air Transport Association that lets airlines show more content with fares, dynamic pricing, and more tailorings of offerings to specific customers. I certainly regret the error and apologize for Airlines Confidential on that one. Sorry if I rubbed any wrong feathers at American or travel agents on that one. Thanks, Ben, for that. It's, uh, it's very confusing, and I'm glad we could straighten it out. Speaking of confusing and straightening out things, Southwest has been briefing employees about its new bad weather operating changes after the Christmas meltdown. With that came an interesting comment, which I thought was worth highlighting, even though we've heard some of this from other airlines as well. Southwest says it's changing the way it forecasts and responds to severe storms. Historic norms no longer work. Southwest said extreme weather is a growing concern for airlines. Chief Operating Officer Andrew Watterson told Bloomberg the airline concluded it needed to plan for outcomes, and here's the quote, that are beyond what we've seen before. Mr. Watterson said that was a big takeaway from the postmortems of the operational nightmare that the airline and consultant Oliver Wyman conducted recently. It's worth noting that other airlines are clearly already planning for more severe outcomes. The winter weather in late December didn't disrupt other carriers nearly as much as Southwest. They got out of the way, stayed out of the way, and recovered faster, recognizing this was not a typical winter storm. For travelers, this likely means earlier shutdowns and cancellations when storms threaten and longer waits for airlines to resume flights because storms are more intense. In short, air travel may face higher storm-related costs and become less reliable if these patterns continue. Another sign of less reliability in the sky, Scott. 
This past week, the Federal Aviation Administration asked airlines to trim summer flight schedules in New York City and Washington, D.C. due to a shortage of air traffic controllers. We don't want to pull down flights, said JetBlue CEO Robin Hayes, and said JetBlue didn't want to cut flights, but if it doesn't, quote, the system is not going to be workable this summer. It's really unfortunate, and the airlines did a really good job between last summer and this summer hiring up, and we're looking forward to a very busy summer where they find the worst staffed up. It's unfortunate that air traffic control looks like it's maybe a year behind in those changes. And this comes at the same time that President Biden's nominee to be the head of the FAA withdrew from consideration. Republicans in the Senate had questioned Phil Washington's slim aviation credentials. Washington is the CEO of the Denver airport, and he's only been at the airport about two years. Most of his transportation experience has been with city bus and rail systems. The lack of aviation experience is a big deal when there's so much concern about the rash of close calls we've had, which the FAA and the NTSB are investigating, and the FAA troubles handling the Boeing 737 MAX and other regulation issues. So it probably is a good thing that Mr. Washington removed himself, but we need a real strong head of the FAA, and it needs to be someone who does know the aviation system well. So I hope they find that person soon. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, and with emphasis on soon, uh, as we've seen with the air traffic control situation in New York, we really need a strong FAA. We talked last week about uh, FAA technology being behind other countries. There is a long to-do list at the FAA, and we really need to get on it, uh, especially when right now we have a Secretary of Transportation who himself doesn't have a whole lot of airline experience. Uh, so in terms of major leadership, and this, this matters on all kinds of fronts, not just uh, the functioning of um, the big federal bureaucracy of the FAA and leadership of that agency, but who's going to push for funding, who's going to push for creating new programs to hire more traffic controllers and deal with the retirements that, that are taking place. Uh, there's just a lot of things to get going and, and get on. And, uh, and, and so I hope something happens quickly. Another Washington issue, Ben, the Association of Flight Attendants and others resurrected the idea that car seats should be required for children under two. The Flight Attendants Union cited an increase in turbulence episodes, more climate change, and noted that in one recent incident, an infant was injured. Ben, I think parents should buy a seat for all their children, not just the ones older than two. I did that as a parent, but I was fortunate that I could afford that. The problem with the policy is that if you require a ticket for lap children, more families will drive instead of fly. And driving is a lot more dangerous statistically for infants. 
In 2020, more than 600 infants were killed in auto accidents and more than 63,000 injured. If the point of the policy is the safety of those children, then requiring a ticket for an infant is a bad policy. I agree with you on that, Scott. You know, an infant, you know, someone under two sitting in their mother's or father's or caregiver's lap has been the norm for a long time. And I don't doubt that this one injury happened and that maybe there is an increase in turbulence. I don't know if that's really true or not. If that's happening more, maybe just some flight attendants have seen more based on the flights they've had. But it seems extreme based on that to create a policy that, like you said, might force more people into cars. That's a backwards way of thinking. Yeah, totally agree. So one more big Washington issue for us to ponder, Ben. United cut Springfield, Illinois and Erie, Pennsylvania from its schedule. That normally wouldn't be all that newsworthy, except that airlines have pulled service from an increasing number of small towns, often blaming a shortage of pilots, regional airline pilots in particular. On March 23, the Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee had a hearing on this issue and others, like passenger rights. The chair of the committee, Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington, noted that economic development typically happens within 10 miles of an airport. So if airports don't have airline service, communities won't have economic development. What's your take on this issue, Ben? Should the government expand its subsidizing of airline service? Should we really start looking at airline service as community economic development? I don't think so, Scott. I've never been a fan of the Essential Air Service Program, although in certain locations like in Alaska and maybe in Montana and someplace, I'm sure it is very helpful. But I think the programs have been too large overall. I think the answer to this problem, Scott, is really twofold. One is regular listeners of the show may remember the interview we had a little while ago with David Sunday, who runs Landline, the company that's running buses as airplanes to feed hubs. For cities like Erie, it would be very convenient to run a bus to Pittsburgh or Springfield. You could easily run a bus to Chicago. And if that bus is where you go through security and where your bag is checked through to your flight and you have a ticket from the airline to get on the bus and they drive you to a secure part of the airport and are marshaled into a gate, it's just like an airplane without wings. And I think that's going to be the answer for many small towns. Now, if the bus ride's going to have to be five or six hours, that's probably not going to work. But certainly for Erie and Springfield, it would. The second idea is airlines have to think about what their long-term relationship with the regionals is. And there certainly are flights 
that the regional size fleet is better fit than the larger airplanes that the big airlines fly. When United placed its big order for 270 airplanes, they pointed out that some of those planes would be replacing regional jets. And the thinking at the time, I thought, we'll have to see what they really do, is that maybe where a regional jet is flying six trips a day, they'll have a 737 fly three times a day or something like that and keep the seat somewhat equal but on fewer frequencies. But as the big airlines who buy regional feed think about the importance of that feed and what the cost of that feed is, they're part of the solution to the problem, I think, of deciding where those planes are better fit So I think even better coordination between the regionals and big guys and everyone, including the government, embracing new ideas like landline to make things happen for small communities. I think it's more than the airport that drives economic activity for a small town, even though the airport helps. But economic activity isn't going to really be propelled if the only way the service to that town is supported is with a federal subsidy. Yeah, I agree, Ben. Uh, And, you know, this has always been a chicken and the egg issue, right? Small cities, small towns say they can't get new jobs and, and economic growth without sufficient air service. And the airlines say, well, we can't serve a, a city and town that doesn't have people flying. Um, and so really, which came first? Uh, and it, it is difficult. I don't think it's ever worked to subsidize air service. Um, but uh, to me, the the better solution would be that Congress really ought to revisit the 1,500-hour pilot rule, which created a large part of this problem. Uh, I don't I don't know if there's the political will uh, to reduce the hours, particularly reduce the 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 hiring requirements uh, for regional airlines as opposed to main airlines, since uh, some of the accidents involved that led to this were at regionals. Uh, but I do think the government could do a lot to subsidize the cost of pilot training, provide low interest loans, provide grants, uh, provide economic help to flight schools, um, that if if this is going to be an economic development priority, if this is going to be something that we consider part of the national infrastructure, um, then the government could do a lot more to recruit new pilot candidates, to train them. When it costs $300,000 to get enough hours to land an airline job where you're going to start at $80,000 or, or less, uh, it, it really, I think, requires uh, some financial assistance uh, because we value those, those jobs and we want to get more people in the air. And that would create the, a greater pool of pilots uh, so that the, a lot of these communities could be served with small planes. You know, years ago, Scott, when my wife and I were both leaving college in the mid-1980s, my wife got a degree in special education. 
And there was a government program at that time. I don't know if it still exists, but it did then. That for people going into that field, some of their student loan would be paid back by the government each year she actually worked as a special education teacher. If she moved into a regular classroom, she wouldn't have gotten that benefit. But for about five years, she taught as a special education teacher. And each year we sent in forms and signatures from her principal of what she did. And every year that loan got smaller by 20% a year. And after five years, it was paid off. Now, teachers don't make as much as pilots are going to make in their career. So some people might think it's not right for the government to pay the full training of someone who, through their career, is going to make millions of dollars, which somebody becoming a pilot in their 20s, if they fly into their 60s, will. But I agree with you that there's ways that the government can help. The other way they can help from that 1,500-hour rule, Scott, is to continue to find ways that based on the quality of training, not the quantity of hours, they're willing to lower that number to something lower than 1,500. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to go to 250 like it was. But today, if you're trained by the military, you can do less than 1,500. Mm -hmm. If you go to a certified flight school, you can do less than 1,500. And finding all those opportunities is really good, too. Excellent. Excellent. All right. We want to thank our sponsor, Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Duop could even connect your plane to bus services that already exist. For example, airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D O H O P.com. We're very excited to have with us today Alex Wilcox, the CEO of JSX Aviation. Alex, welcome to the show and tell us about yourself and what got you into aviation early in your career. Hey, Ben. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks to you and Scott. I'm excited to be here today. You know, I traveled a lot as a child. Uh, my mother is Swiss and from uh, the French-speaking part. My father is a New Yorker and I was born in London. And so I, I flew a lot as a child and probably like many of your listeners, I just love airplanes. I love flying. I love seeing places that were new to me. So I just kind of got the bug, you know, very, very early. I actually remember as a kid being asked what I wanted to do when I grew up. And invariably, I'd say, I want to be in the airline industry. And also invariably, they'd say, oh, you want to be a pilot? 
And I'd say, no, 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 I don't want to be a pilot. I want to help run an airline. And most people would just look at me like I was crazy because they didn't understand that there were people that did that. You know, as a kid, I also enjoyed programming computers. And once I thought about starting an ISP, and probably financially, it would have been a lot better off if I just <laughs> stuck in that direction. But for better or for worse, I followed my first passion, which was uh, which was flying. And Alex, you've, you've, you co-founded uh, JSX. It was uh, Jet Suite X at, at the time. You were involved in starting up JetBlue. Uh, you've had many different roles. Um, but, but JSX is a different animal. Explain the JSX business model and who are your customer targets and how does that fit into the competition among the big boys and the regional airlines? Yeah, thanks, Scott. I mean, the JSX model is actually quite simple. It's, it's even in our name. So JSX stands for a joyful, simple experience, right? JSX. And our basic purpose is to help somebody get from point A to point B as quickly and easily as possible. And then our secret sauce is that we want them to be happier at the destination than they were at the start of their journey, right? So we don't really think a lot or spend a whole lot of time thinking about where or how we fit in in the industry. We just focus on pleasing our customers, right? Um, we kind of ripped that off of the Amazon playbook, which is don't worry so much about your competitors. Just focus on pleasing your customers and everything else will take care of itself. So we think if we consistently, better than anybody else, better than any other motor transportation, because it's not just airlines, it's buses, it's cars, limos, private jets, trains, you know, whatever. As long as we're the preferred solution of our customers in our markets and they see value in paying for our services, we've got it made. Well, I love the idea of arriving happier than when you departed. So tell us where JSX is flying today and what are your growth plans? Based on what you just said, everyone's going to want you in their town. So our operations started seven years ago was our very first ticket sale for JetSuite X at the time, now JSX. Our operations started uh, from, from Concord, a little airport in the East Bay of San Francisco, close to Walnut Creek, and uh, went down to Burbank. And that was our very first market. Our second market was from Burbank to uh, Las Vegas. So Nevada and California is where we started, and that's certainly where we're biggest today. Uh, we've got many different kinds of markets. You know, for example, we'll fly four round trips a week, say from LA to, uh, or Dallas down to Cabo. But we also do you know, 14 flights a day, seven round trips a day between Burbank and Las Vegas. Las Vegas is definitely the engine of JSX. It's our bread and butter. Uh, but we also do very well up and down the coast in California. And during the pandemic, we started flying out of Dallas, where we saw demand coming back first. And we've had many successful markets from here already, uh, from here in Dallas, where I'm talking to you from. We also fly on the East Coast now. We fly from White Plains to Miami a couple times a day at fares that are great uh, compared to the other you know, semi-private options, I'll call them. But we also really like airports that nobody else uses. You know, a good example is, is BJC, Boulder, Colorado, uh, where we have a real advantage over the major airport, you know, which we actually call West Kansas Airport, also known as Denver International. You know, BJC is like 20 minutes to downtown Denver or 20 minutes to downtown Boulder. It's actually closer to both of those than the so-called Denver Airport is. And you can be out of your car and on the plane in 20 minutes. <laughs> I challenge anybody to get from a car to an airplane in 20 minutes at DIA. So, you know, if you're on a JSX flight from Denver to Dallas, for example, or to Boulder, I'm sorry, or, or, or to, uh, to Las Vegas, uh, or to Phoenix, or to Burbank, you know, we'll have you at your destination. Um, pretty much the time you'd be pushing back from DIA if, if, you, if you took that as an option. So that's a, that's a real advantage. You know, so there's Concord. Uh, we fly to Taos. We're the only game in town in Taos. We like that as well. 
but we don't really have a single strategy. You know, we've got some uh, daily markets, we've got some multiple times a day markets, we've got some few times a week markets. Uh, we've got about 35 airplanes flying today. A uh, number of them are on frequent year-round routes. A number are on actually pure charters. And a number of them are on, you know, the old school Allegiant model where we only fly sporadically and seasonally in certain markets. You know, these are 20-year-old airplanes. Uh, we bought them right, and that gives us a lot of flexibility in how to deploy them. And Alex, what plane is it you're flying? We fly a uh, highly modified Embraer 145. I never call it an RJ or original jet. We kind of ban that word from our vocabulary. We just call it EMB-145s because there's nothing sort of regional or bus-like about them. Uh, we we bought them. Uh, we've actually got 16 135s, and the rest of the fleet is all 145s, and every airplane we'll be plugging in now will be a 145. You know, we get them typically out of the desert, and we put them through a seat check, and we put in a new interior. We basically gut the interior. We replace all the plastic, all the airline stuff with uh, you know more kind of – uh, highly durable. It's still you know, more luxurious fabrics. Uh, it's a nice white cabin. The biggest visible difference is that, you know, we don't have those uh, fluorescent yellow flickering bulbs in there anymore. We replaced them all with bright white LEDs. And so you've got all new headliner, you got side, new sidewalls, you've got recovered seats, you've got new carpets. And then the biggest difference is that we take the overhead bins out. And if you're familiar with the 145, Ben, I know you like to jump out of overhead bins, but you wouldn't fit in one of those. Um, so you're, you're not actually losing anything on JSX. We take the overhead bins out, which creates a whole lot more headroom. And, you know, the the cousin or the the sister ship of the 145 is a legacy 600 and 650. And no one ever thinks of a 145 as a, as a comfortable airplane until they experience it, you know, in the JSX format. Because there's a whole lot of headroom. It's bright white. It's lit. Um, and we take out the middle seats, too. So we can only fly... 30 seats under part 135. And so that gives us a lot of room, particularly in the 145. So we've got a one-by-one configuration. The middle seat is gone, replaced by a cocktail table. It goes up and down the middle of the cabin. And so you're never sitting next to somebody. Uh, You're always across the aisle from them uh, or they're in front of you or behind you. And um, it's a totally different, totally different feeling, totally different airplane. So we're taking, you know, on average, a 30,000 cycle airplane that's 20 years old and we're making it, you know, look and smell uh, brand new again. And, uh, you know, you can see pictures on our website, jsx.com. But if you haven't, you know, experienced it, you really can't see what a visceral difference it is. So we, we love the airplane. And some of my friends do, too, uh, particularly the, the Dallas-Austin run is a, is a favorite. Alex, the big airlines are grappling with increased pilot wages, family seating policies, sustainable fuel, lots more. Um, do you deal with the same issues? Yeah, Scott, of course. I mean, you know, we operate in the same market as everybody else. You know, we, we've got much lower capital costs than most, but we've got much higher, you know, operating costs uh, than other carriers, particularly on a per seat basis. It's really amortize our costs across 30 seats. Now, like I said, the planes are 20 years old. We bought them right, but they burn fuel uh, like everybody else does. And we do everything that we can to reduce that fuel burn. Uh, you know, seating policies, they don't really affect us because all of our seats are great. And we can easily move people around the cabin because no one's going to complain. You know, if they're whether in row two or in row 12, it's basically the same experience. And so we don't really have problems seating people together. We do sell seats ahead of time so you can book whatever seat you want. But we've, to my knowledge, never had a complaint about, you know, separating a, uh, a family. The only complaint we do get, sometimes if you have like a three-year-old or a child is too big to be on the lap, they have to be all the way across the aisle from dad or mom. And that can actually present some challenges. 
because uh, mm. you're a little too far away from your kid because we you know they can't they can't be literally physically next to you. Your listeners might like a bit of trivia. Our uh, our one by two, our one thirty fives are still in a more conventional one by two, but lots of legroom. Um, and we actually sell more seat assignments, a lot more seat assignments in the one by two configuration because there is an exit row that's a little bit more spacious, and there is that kind of differentiated single seat on the left hand side versus a double on the right hand side. So we sell a lot of seat assignments on the 135 flights, which are pretty much the West Coast in Las Vegas. And then we sell very few seat assignments, relatively speaking, on the 145s because, like I said, there's not a bad seat in the house. You know, you get the you get your built-in cocktail table if you're on the right side, uh, but if you're on the left side, you know, you're still by yourself. And so people don't seem to have a huge preference, uh, frankly. And in terms of pilots, because you're you're part 135. Yep. Right? Yeah. So part 135, are, are you still subject to the 1,500-hour rule, or can pilots build hours at JSX um, before they head off elsewhere? So we can actually recruit the most experienced pilots in the market uh, because we do fly under part 135, and the regulations are a little bit different. So there's no hard age limit under part 135. Uh, they're talking about you know, allowing a 70-year-old a rule here. Uh, but we take uh, probably a third of our pilots are actually airline retirees. So we do get them uh, at the end of their careers, and we also get them, as you suggest, at the beginning of their careers. And so we've got a big differentiation in terms of you know the kinds of pilots that we can hire. So if you've got, you know, there are military pilots that are flying fighter jets that have you know under a thousand hours of, uh, of total time. So it's it's really not about the time uh, or the experience that they've got necessarily. It's more about you know do you have <laughs> fifteen hundred hours? To, do you have fifteen hundred hours of experience, or do you have ten hours of experience? You know, um, one hundred fifty times. Uh, there, there's a big difference. And so we focus really on the quality of the training. So we have, like I said, a, a third of our pilots probably have uh, over 15,000 hours. Mm. Uh, and a third of them probably have, uh, you know, under 2,000 hours. We typically don't hire many without at least 1,000 hours. And then a third of them are kind of lifers. They're somewhere in between. You know, they're people that like the lifestyle that we can offer them, getting them home most nights as opposed to sending them off to, you know, far regions of the world. People with young families, they like to, you know, see their kids. From time to time, and not spend their life in a break room or uh, or on a long haul trip on reserve somewhere. So uh, yeah, we do definitely have, uh, I guess, an advantage in terms of the pilots, you know, kind of pilots that we can that we can hire. But I don't want that to be misconstrued at all. We we go way beyond above and beyond Part One Thirty Five in terms of our SMS. You know, we have a real safety management system that basically mimics a One Twenty One air carrier. We have a, a real focal program. Uh, we have a real ASAP program. So those tools that the One Twenty One carriers have developed over time to really, you know, enhance and create the, what's the safest transportation industry in the world. We take advantage of all the, all the programs that really that do enhance safety. Alex, a while ago on this show, we had Tony LaFave on. Tony is the president of Signature Aviation. And he was saying on his interview that he felt the pandemic opened up a new market for private aviation. We've talked on this show a lot about the change in business travel and the emergence of the leisure or blended traveler. Do you think what's happened over the last couple of years has been good for the JSX model in terms of people looking for different solutions? Yeah, I would say yes. Um, you know, certainly when the pandemic came on, people were looking for different ways to travel. They were open to change. You know, it's very hard to change behavior 
And so that was definitely a forcing mechanism that, that allowed people to think, you know, about hey, what is really the best way to get from from here to there. And so per, people became open to alternatives. So I think that the you know the change in business travel and, and kind of the awareness of the blended travel has, has helped a lot, and certainly the pandemic helped a lot for similar reasons. You know, we are highly indexed to discretionary travel at JSX. You know, um, we're underweight in corporate travel. By corporate travel, I mean, you know, typical Fortune 500 managed travel programs. We do fine with small and medium businesses, people that, you know, control their own budgets, but we don't fit into the distribution models or the market share models or the bribery models that the Fortune 500 travel programs seem to operate under. So, you know, we think that business will move to us over time just because of the strength of our product and the convenience of our product and service uh, because we save so much what really matters to people. And by that, I mean time. But, you know, we don't play with the same kinds of... uh, things that the network carriers uh, try to use against us. Alex, you were an early employee of JetBlue at its founding. Does does anything surprise you about how that airline has grown and changed over the last 20 years? Yes. David Nealman hired me two weeks before the company was founded. I was living in Connecticut at the time. I, you know, I picked him up one night, I think in 1997 at White Plains Airport. <laughs> we had dinner in Sanford, Connecticut, and dinner I'll never forget. Um, and the next day, we drove to Van Wyck about 12 times between LaGuardia and JFK. Yeah. And at the time, everybody was, everybody was telling him that no one would ever drive to JFK for a domestic flight. And he was convinced, and obviously was proven right, that you know for the right product, the right fare, of course they would. By the way, the average time was like 12 to 16 minutes uh, between the two airports. They're not that far apart outside of rush hour. Huh. So, but JetBlue's, you know, to your question, JetBlue's growth has been really satisfying to watch. I think the team there does a great job operating in very difficult markets. You know, I never imagined first class on board. I never imagined narrow body transatlantic flights. And I really admire how they've executed on Mint and on the transatlantic. Got the chance to fly it myself not too long ago. JetBlue's obviously been an extremely supportive investor and partner with JSX as well. They've got innovation in their blood. You know, they were first with live TV, first with free internet. Um, and I think the industry is really better off for them being in the market. You know, Alex, you go out to eat and you've got everything from McDonald's to Morton's and you buy a car and you got the Ford Focus to a luxury Tesla or maybe even better than that. Do you think there's enough diversity in the business models of the airlines? You can fly for real cheap on like a Frontier or in much better luxury on an airline like yours or even private aviation. What do you think? Is there room for any more here? Yes. I mean, it's a leading question, obviously. And I think, Ben, that the industry is woefully lacking in, in, in its offerings to consumers. You know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about why that is. If you look at the I mean, use of restaurants, if you look at hotel industry, it's a similar uh, kind of deal. You know, there's really something for everybody. I think Marriott alone has 16 brands. Hilton's got like a dozen. And of course, there's many boutique chains. There's lots of independent hotels. They've even got Airbnb, right? Which is like Uber, I guess, for, for, for rooms. And now the brands are actually pivoting to give you the private house that you want from an Airbnb, but with the hygiene you expect from a brand. And so in aviation, we really have none of that. You know, in the airport experience, whether you're in first class or whether you're, you know, on that subscription deal from Frontier, for 95% of our customers, the airport, experience is totally undifferentiated, right? Everybody has to use the same small piece of the airport to get on a plane. Everyone has to go through the same parking lot, the same front door, the front same checkpoint, walk through the same shopping mall, sit in the same gate area, you know, and go down the same jetway. And once you get on board, 
you're sitting on a plane built by one of four manufacturers in a seat made by one of two or three OEMs served by someone who belongs to one of two or three unions. And, you know, the one thing we do well in this industry to its credit is safety. We already talked about that. And, you know, it's a damn important thing to have, of course. It's safer to get on a commercial plane than it is to go to bed. But, you know, and I credit that to the, to the operators and the safety specialists and the FAA, TSA, DOT, and TSB, uh, and the SMS programs I named earlier. But I think other than that, from a customer service standpoint, the industry is really just the lowest common denominator across the board. And I think the reason for that is because the barriers to entry are so high. And so it's probably going to stay this way for a long time. You know, at JSX, we're fighting for a third way, not a private jet, because that's just too expensive for the vast majority of people, not an airline, but an easier way of getting from point A to point B. I mean, if I'm going on a 16-hour flight, you know, from Dallas to, I don't know, Asia or Doha, I don't really care about, you know, an hour at the airport. But do I need that same infrastructure for a trip to Austin? You know, as Scott mentioned, you know, do I need the same infrastructure to get to Austin for 35 minutes down the road as, as to get to Doha 16 hours away? And the answer is, of course not, right? 60 or 90 minutes in an airport for 45 minutes in an airplane just doesn't make any sense at all. It's not what the right brothers intended. And so if you look at the hype around this EV toll and hybrid electric stole concepts that are being developed, I think the reason for that, and by the way, I'm a skeptic. I'll talk about that if you want. But I think the reason for the hype is because people are just desperate for another way of getting around. So I, I do not believe in the EV toll market, but I strongly believe in the hybrid electric market, maybe someday all electric fixed wing market that can take maybe you know six or eight or nine people uh, at a chasm equivalent to a 220 passenger, say Spirit 321 Neo, but in much, much smaller markets. And I think it's the equation is basically this, you know, we put up with the airports that we have because we want the low cost. The JSX model, you know, we can fix the convenience, but we can't fix the cost. Uh, we can't touch the cost. So if you want the convenience and the cost, you've got to go small and you have to have an alternative power plant. And that's where I see the you know so-called future of mobility, uh, not the asked. <laughs> uh, but small is beautiful for convenience and cheap is beautiful for cost. And if you can get, you know, if you can get convenient and low cost, then together those things are unbeatable. And I think that's what the promise of fixed wing, you know, call it S tall uh, hybrid electric aviation has. And we certainly intend to be on the forefront of that. That's a great summary of where things are going and, and the pluses and minuses of the various models. Um, something more routine. How do people book JSX? Is it all direct booking? Are you in Expedia? Are you in the, uh, the GDSs? So um, I'm glad you asked. Yes, our, our preferred method of booking uh, for us, of course, in terms of distribution cost is go to jsx.com and, and buy a ticket. But um, I'm very happy to say that we also have distribution from our friends at JetBlue, our friends and investors at JetBlue, um, where you can actually buy it, our tickets on jsx at jetblue.com. You can also access most of our inventory, almost all of our routes, um, with certain exceptions, uh, through the GDSs, but via the JetBlue code share. So we have a real code share with JetBlue. It's the first uh, ever part 380-135 slash, you know, 121 code share. Uh, so JetBlue, once again, you know, helped break new ground in uh, achieving that and all the uh, DOT approvals that were required to achieve that. And we're very grateful to them for that. And we also have an airline arrangement with United Airlines. And so United, we part with United and you can go to united.com and again, uh, buy most of our routes at united.com. And, um, you can also get True Blue Miles and United Miles, you know, when, when you fly with uh, when you fly with us, whatever you choose. And so we're very, very proud of our partnerships with JetBlue and with United. 
And we're also very happy to sell tickets directly at JSX.com. That's great, Alex. You know, earlier in your career, you worked at what I will say normal airlines, bigger airlines. What surprises have you found moving to a 135 operation and a JSX kind of operation? Well, um, I wasn't really a surprise, but I'm reminded pretty much every day that doing something new is really hard to do, you know, and change has its enemies. And one of our biggest challenges is actually, you know, real estate, airport real estate. You show up to a new airport, they haven't heard of you, they don't really know what your, what your what your offer is, and they say, "Oh, you're an airline. Okay, well, here's the terminal. You know, here's the gate contract. Here's the ticket counter contract." And they're like, "No, no, no, guys, we don't fly from the terminals. This is our all USP. We fly from our own facilities." And oh, oh, you're private aviation. Okay, yeah, go to the go to the FBO. We're like, no, we're not going to the FBO because as much as I like Tony, um, and by the way, we're big partners with Signature. We we're, we're tenants with Signature in many places, but typically an FBO charges substantially more for fuel and services than, than an airline is willing to pay. And so, you know, we tell the airports that, hey, we want a third way, you know, again, we want a direct relationship with you because typically the airports outsource all of their real estate, non-commercial airline, non-121 airline real estate to an FBO. And they'll just basically give them monopoly position or duopoly position with respect to general aviation. And, and I think that's one of the reasons you've seen the valuations you've seen as FBOs have traded. And so we go in there and we say, guys, we can't be in the terminal because that's not our, that's not how we operate. Um, and we don't want to be with an FBO, and so we're, we're looking for a third way. And so the airports that get it accommodate us very quickly. We fly to lots of airports that are not Part 139, so we couldn't even take those people into the terminal if we wanted to. And so the biggest challenge for us has been, you know, explaining not to the market but to the airport operators, you know, how and why we're different. And uh, you know, <laughs> there's a cliche that if you've seen one airport, you've seen one airport, and I, I can tell you that that is very true in our experience as well. Alex, what else should our listeners know about working for JSX or flying JSX? Well, for people who want to work here, you know, they should know that we want JSX, uh, JSX, a joyful, simple experience, not just for our customers, but also for our crew members. Everybody here is part of the crew, like JetBlue, we total straight ripoff. We call everyone a crew member, not an employee, because everybody's job has something to do with getting airplanes off the ground. While JSX is still very much an adolescent organization, we're seven years old tomorrow, we strive to make the experience of our crew members as joyful as that of our customers. We're realistic. You know, we're we realistic and I can promise that to our crew members as well. In fact, I make one promise in all of our orientations. I promise our new people that there are going to be bad days. There's going to be bad weather. There's going to be broken airplanes. There's going to be sick crew members. There are going to be many things out of our control that frustrate our efforts and our desire to provide joy to our customers. But knowing that on the front side means that we don't have to have an emotional reaction, you know, to a predictable event. And it means we can be better prepared to apologize and recover, uh, regardless of whose fault it is. We don't even talk about fault, even if it's not, you know, quote unquote, our fault. We just apologize. And so, you know, if you want to be part of the future of aviation, if you want to have fun at work, if you want to be part of an organization that's loved by its customers and it's got many, many, many of its best days ahead of us, um, you should definitely come work for JSX. And if you're a customer or a potential customer and you haven't tried us yet, you will not be disappointed. And if you are, tell me. And if you're not, tell all your friends. Alex, this has been terrific. I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't yet flown JSX, but I can't wait to. We really appreciate you coming on the show, telling us all about your great product and some of the differences between both traditional airlines and private aviation. 
Well, Ben and Scott, thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, it's much appreciated and uh, very much enjoy your podcast. Keep going. Great to talk with you and you keep going too. It's a lot of fun watching what you're doing. Thanks, Scott. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. We want to thank our longtime sponsor, Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. Its revolutionary geared fan architecture is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And we want to remind listeners about Aviation Festival Americas 2023, which will be May 16th and 17th in Miami Beach. Ben and I will be on stage on the morning of the 17th recording the podcast with the audience and a very special guest. And Ben, I'm really looking forward to this. Airlines Confidential listeners get a special discount. Just go to airlinesconfidential.com and click on the banner and use AC50 to save 50% on your registration. Okay, Ben, some interesting comments and criticisms in this week's mailbag. First, Kathy from Arlington, Virginia says, Hi, Ben and Scott. I am an aviation enthusiast and really enjoy your show. After a recent episode, I went to your website to check out the reading list. As I clicked around, I was struck by the fact that in the first 12 pages of episodes, there were only two women. I would love to hear from more women and people of diverse backgrounds. Representation matters if you want to bring the brightest minds into the industry. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. We both totally agree. It can be a challenge in this industry. It's very male-dominated and very white at senior levels, but that's not an excuse. We need to do better, and we will certainly try. I agree, Scott. And the women we have had on the show have been spectacular, I think, and do make the show better when we can keep that mix up. Scott, our pen pal Joe from Victorville brings up a new topic, abusive passengers. Joe says, hi guys, love the show. I've been in the industry for five years and I have seen my fair share of unruly passengers. The majority of the passengers who cause problems on aircraft are on drugs or mentally ill. Why can't Sarah Nelson and the various unions and CEOs demand that Congress solve the drug and mental health crisis affecting the country, which is likely the reason for the issue? Joe, alcohol is actually the most common denominator to a lot of unruly passenger episodes and attacks on flight attendants and other passengers. It's a big ask to say, solve the drug and mental health crisis. That's certainly something our elected leaders should be working on. But a more immediate remedy for those of us in the airplane cabin is the recently proposed national no-fly list that was introduced in Congress this past week. A bipartisan group of lawmakers proposed this, and the airlines support it. TSA would handle it, and there would be opportunities for appeal. 
FAA data show there were 831 unruly passenger incidents last year compared to 146 in 2019. I think losing your flying privileges would be a big deterrent and ground people who have injured others. I agree, Ben. It doesn't make sense for one airline to ban someone because of abusive behavior, and then that person can just go get on another airline. It doesn't make sense for someone convicted of assaulting a flight attendant or passenger to just get back on a flight. As we always told our teenagers, there are consequences to bad behavior. Losing access to airline service would be a big consequence and a big threat for air crews to wield. In the air, it's not a democracy. The crew is in charge and passengers need to comply, even if they don't like what's happening. Speaking of not liking something, listener Stephen from Saratoga Springs, New York, didn't like our guest Mo Garfinkel's approach to the JetBlue Spirit merger. Mo outlined his objections to the deal, including the fear that removing the biggest ultra-low-cost discount airline from the marketplace will lead to higher fares for many passengers. Stephen says, quote, JetBlue has big plans to combine with Spirit and disrupt ticket prices across the market, especially inside the 80% share of the market held by the big four. A capitalist would see this as good business competition. Sadly, Mr. Garfinkel chooses to forgo this in order to preserve bottom-of-the-barrel price and service offered to less than 5% of the market, clearly a socialist perspective. Mo should move to France. Well, Mo is a winemaker, Ben, and I'm sure Mo would flourish in France, but he has a long record in the business world and has clearly been a very successful capitalist. That said, it will be very interesting to see how the government's strong arm impacts airline competition in the U.S. A trial is set for October on the JetBlue Spirit merger, but don't be surprised if there's a postponement or settlement before that. Well, I like Stephen's note, of course, and I don't think that Mo is a socialist, but Mo did disclose at the beginning that he had worked for Frontier when they were trying to buy Spirit, so I'm sure he learned all the talking points of why that merger would be so good for the world, and he repeated a lot of those, didn't he, Scott? Yeah, sure did. Raise good points. Uh, you know, it's a it's a really interesting uh, argument. I I agree with Stephen that I think JetBlue can be more disruptive and offer low fares to more people uh, because that eighty percent of the market held by the big four they do respond to JetBlue and they segregate their response to Spirit. Um, so I still believe, and I know um, Mo and I disagreed on this, but still believe that if what you're really interested in are low fares, that JetBlue can be a more impactful, bigger airline in the marketplace than Spirit can. Well, that's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Thanks again to Alex Wilcox for a real great discussion. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening. Send us your questions and comments, and we'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.